the Spirit of God is working in you. The Spirit of God is working in you through his word. I've said it, a major theme through 1 John is this, that there'd be a growing absence of sin and a growing presence of love in our life. That's a massive theme in 1 John. From, from the jump, from the chapter one to now, that, that John is repetitive and fatherly and is gonna say something this morning that he said, I think four to nine times thus far in different ways. And that's this. We are loved people who are going to love people. That's who we are. And you're like, all right, John, why do you keep saying the exact same thing? I'm not going to love my brother. Why? Because we need this pressed into our hearts. We need this to not be a concept that we can comprehend, but an experience that we actually have and know and live out. But this morning, not a growing absence of sin and a growing presence of love, what he is going to focus on is a growing absence of fear. A growing absence of fear. So I want you to see with me, it's 1 John 4. We're going to finish this chapter this morning and move to chapter 5 next week. But 1 John 4, verse 16. This is where we left off last week. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. That's the second time he's made that assertion. That statement. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. So twice in this chapter, God is love. And so I I talked about it a lot last week, but I want to clarify further what that means by by really showing what it doesn't mean (laughs) up front. What what are we talking about? What is John talking about? What is he trying to get at when he says God is love? Well, number one, God is love does does not mean that love is God. That's to deify love. That's to put it as its own thing and make it its its own like deity to worship. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God is love. He's not saying love is God. So God is love. If we do this and we deify love, uh, all those warm feelings and even impure lusts are regarded somehow as divine. Divine is what I'm trying to say. But real love, real love, actually hates moral evil and clings to righteousness. And so we're going to deify love. We're going to understand what does he mean by God is love. Well, secondly, he does not mean that God is only love. Do you hear me? God is not only love, as if to say that and carve off all of his other attributes. We'll say, oh, God is only love, but let's carve off justice and holiness and righteousness, and we'll put that off and just say that he is love. Wrong. It's not only love. He's not only love, but God is love. What he is saying is that love is God's very being. This is his nature. This is his essence. Love is not merely a relation that God has with those outside of himself or an act in which he engages towards his creation, but love is his very being. 
This is who he is. It's not a mood he has. It's who he is. Which means the love of God that we know in Christ Jesus cannot be reduced to God's saving work. It's actually the saving work of Christ reveals God's love for us. It's out of his character, what love, that he acts, sends his son to be what John has said, the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's a big deal because that's where we get really rubber meeting the road when we get to the fear in a minute. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. I'm kind of slowing down. I just want to walk slowly through this so that we can get an accurate depiction of what this means. God is love. And so just think about who God is. Maybe think about your doctrine of God. And if this is true, what needs to be tweaked in how you think about God? What needs to be changed in how you think about God? How you understand who he actually is. That that if God is always like you and never disagrees with you, then that's probably not the God of the Bible. That's probably the God of your imagination. And so there's always things that we need to consider, reflect, change, tweak on how we think about God. So first one, love. God is love means that love permeates God's attributes and harmonizes with them all. His holiness is a loving holiness, and his love is a holy love. So again, you can't say he's, he's just only justice. You, if you're going to talk about his justice, you also have to talk about his love. And you really can't talk about his love without talking about his justice because his love is so ferocious, like real love is. His love is so ferocious that if he loves you, then he's going to be against anything, a.k.a. hate, things that are going to destroy you, deceive you, ruin you, wreck your life. So God's love and justice are not at odds. They all work together, and his love permeates all his attributes. Secondly, God is pure love. Just as God is light implies that in him is no darkness at all, so God is love implies that no malice lurks in his being. I... I did not rewrite this because I love that phrase. It doesn't lurk. There's no malice lurking in his being. That's what God is love means. Do you know when you think, "Ah, I really like this person, I'm I'm starting to enjoy this, but what are their intentions in this relationship? What are they trying to get out of me? Are they trying to use me? Or or what did they mean by that? What are they trying to are they, are they trying to manipulate me? What, what, what's going on here? In your relation with God, there need not be any of that. No questioning, doubting, concern, wondering about his, his intentions, under his intentions. Because there's no malice in him because he's love. Number three, God's love is of himself. We've talked about this a lot, but I will make the point again. God's love does not arise from something out of him. He didn't become loving when he created. He created because he's loving. He didn't become loving when he started saving people. He saved people because he's loving. Because he's always been loving. The Father has always loved the Son and the Spirit. This is who our God is. This is why our 
church fathers and men and women throughout church history have fought for a clarity of the doctrine of God because to miss the Trinity is to then actually miss your understanding and experience of love. So he's saying, God's love is of himself. He didn't try to, he didn't pick it up from somewhere. He wasn't taught it. He didn't catch it from other people. He is love and has always been loving, which gets to the fourth. Oh, I love this. God's love is as infinite as his being. Love is not like 10%, like this little, like you try to think about his attributes and layer them out and put them like, well, he's 10% justice, and he's 10% righteousness, and he's 10%. He doesn't break down like that. His love is infinite as he is, which Joel Beakey says, a fish could sooner drink the Mississippi River dry than we could empty the fountain of his love. Now, if that's who God is love, if that's who he is, <clears throat> then we get back to verse 16. We've come to know and to believe not just that he is love, but that he loves us. This, this can, I know it's bizarre, but I know us, we can make even the love of God in an impersonal force or thing that's out there and not directed towards us. And John is going to repeat himself so much through this epistle, the second epistle, the third epistle, and his gospel. Why? Because we can stiff arm this love as an impersonal force or this thing that's like, okay, that is who he is. I know about God. But John is saying, no, no, his love and all this is for two all in you because of Jesus. And so he loves you. You've come to know it and believe it. And so knowing and believing means when you don't know it, when you don't feel it, when your emotions don't catch up or make sense or make you think like you uh, uh, understand or know that God loves you and you feel like he's distant, aloof, and that cosmic policeman that's just trying to write you a ticket, you're going to say, I'm not going to trust my feelings. I'm going to believe the Bible. So I'm going to believe that he loves me, even when I don't feel like he loves me. Even when I'm questioning, why am I so unloving? I'm going to believe he loves me. That's, as Christians, this is the fundamental impulse of the Father to you. Love. Love. I've told you, it should be the soundtrack of your life. The perpetual, forever repeated song in your heart. You can think about it in kind of two ways. If, if Miss Lynette told me about Joni Erickson Tata's new book coming out. If you don't know Joni, then her story is, is being a quadriplegic, and her new book is about heaven, and it's something like the most wonderful, beautiful party of all time, and she's talking about heaven, and if you think about heaven, and you think about revelation, you know, or I'll tell you, that our, our like, chorus to God in praise and adoration is you are holy, holy, holy. But also, if you think that from you to uh, uh, God, think about what God will be saying to you forever. 
It's what he already says to you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And we respond with, we love you. You're holy, holy, holy. I love you. I love. That's the, that's the relationship, not for you in the future, but also right now. That this would be the soundtrack of our lives. And if you're like, I, I, I need a specific example. Okay, uh, we can talk about the cross because we did because that's what John says and what he anchors God's love to and shows you this is how you can see God loves you is that Jesus died in your place for your sins. But back up before his crucifixion, look at the eve of his cru- crucifixion and on the last supper, you know what he's not doing? He's not drinking alcohol to numb the pain of the grief that he's experienced the eve of his crucifixion. He's not asking his disciples to pamper him or take care of him uh, to make sure he feels very, very comfortable the night before his crucifixion. No, he's praying for you on the eve of his crucifixion. He's submitting to the Father for us. He cried out on our behalf and tomorrow he'll die for the Father's greatness to be seen and celebrated and for your salvation, for you to have eternal life, as John has said in this epistle. He loves you. You need a specific example. This is it. Who dies for a friend? Okay. Who dies for an enemy? That's his love and action to you, that he didn't write you off, fill up with bitter, bitterness and resentment because you're his enemy, but actually his love, or as we sing, his kindness conquered you and wooed you to himself by his death for you. This is his love, clearly on display, which means... For those of us, for all of us that have that God-given desire for security that can get out of whack, right, with ignore desires and become like a love of control and we worship control and we try to control everything and all the people. But just that God-given desire for security means it's met in Christ's love for you. You're secure. Family, you're secure. You're secure as that baby being held by his mom. That's how secure you are in God's love. Secure. His love actually breathes confidence into our hearts. That's what he says next. Verse 17. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now buckle up. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Now this is important because I want you to think about the argument that he's making this far. And if you're new with this, I'll just tell you what the argument he's made this far. He said that love is made complete 
Uh, you can think about the circuitry of electricity where it, it continues and it completes when it actually makes its whole circuit. He's saying love is made complete. God's love is made complete in you when it finishes in this way, when it goes this way. And what does he say this for? He said three things. When it compels the love to action to obey God's word. Love is made complete when you actually obey God's word. You testify that he loves you and you love him when you actually say, I'm going to say yes to everything he's called me to. I'm going to say yes to everything he's told me. I'm going to say yes to everything he's commanded me because I know he loves me and it's for my good and I want to honor him in all of it. That's love in completion. But it's not just that. He's added another one. Love is made complete when we love one another. So you, you can't be the, uh, uh, the lake the tributary, the creek that has no place where you run into, it can't stop on you, it can't terminate on you. Love, God's love, is so ferocious, its intent is to get in you and then flow through you to others. That's when it's made complete. And then now he's saying, love is made complete when we face God's judgment without fear. When you're able to Recollect your life and everything you've done and thinking about, I'm going to see Jesus and he knows every thought, intent, desire, relationship, and I'm going to see him and even with all that, I'm going to have confidence. I'm going to have confidence why? Because as he is, this mean, this is a big phrase that, that, that to try to unpack, but I'll just say it this way. The father treats his children the same way he treats his son. That's what it means. We are just like Jesus in the world in the sense of we are loved affirmed and secured by God's love for us just as Jesus was. Before Jesus' ministry, before he does one act of, of like public working out love towards other people, the father says as a baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And just as that was Jesus on the earth. That's how we are on the earth. We are loved by the Father, well pleased with us because we're in the Son. So he treats us. He, he uh, interacts, engages with us just as he did with his Son. So if that's the case, then there's no fear for us because there's no punishment for us. There's no punishment for you. There's no whips. There's no beatings. There's no hell. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. There's no ridicule. There's no mocking. There's no punishment because you are loved. So no fear should be in us because there's no present or future for us where there's any sense, iota, dot of punishment for us. Because the fullness of God's punishment was poured out on the Son, so it's none left for us. None. There's just not a drop. I'm saying it's not there. 
It's been dealt with. If you go to a friend's house and there's one cup of water and they drink it all and you're like, I'd love some water. Like, well, well, the, the, the pipes are turned off. There's no water. That's it. I drink it all. That's what Jesus has done for you. And that's what we do, right? Sometimes we volunteer for it. I'd like to be punished. I'm gonna punish myself. I'm gonna beat myself up for what I've done. <laughs> and John is saying, no, the cup has already been drunk. There's nothing left. No punishment. None. Or as you all may know, or I'll tell you, that's why so many Christians throughout church history have loved Romans 8. Or so many people have argue that it may be the greatest chapter in the Bible. Why? Well, it starts off with there's no longer condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Exactly what John is saying. You will never be punished by God. And I'm going to repeat it. Because we still intuitively and functionally operate as if he's going to punish us or he's punishing us every day. He's not. This is back to the know and believe. You feel like he's punishing, but you have to believe that he is not punishing you. He's not. The cup is empty. He can't even give it to you if he wanted to, but I know he doesn't. None. Zero. Calvin put it this way, believers approach God's judgment seat confidently and cheerfully because they are convinced of his fatherly love. I really love that he added cheerfully. I think some of us still think when we're before the face of God or when we're going to see him in the future, that we're going to be sullen, sulken, despairing, sad, lacking confidence, unsure of how we can go to him, unsure of being in his presence, scared. <laughs> if it was contingent upon us, then yes, be terrified. But if he's rescued you and made you yours, there's nothing to fear from him. Nothing. The fundamental impulse of the father to you is not to scare you or terrify you. Unlike some of your dads, the father doesn't love to get in your face, yell at you, and try to force you into change. He loves you. He's not trying to scare you to a greater sonship. He's loving you into a greater sonship. which means I need to acknowledge this. You and I need to discern and be able to nuance the difference between punishment and discipline. From the Father and to everyone else in our life, we need to be able to think and have categories for what is punishment and what is discipline. Because Proverbs, so we're saying there's no punishment, right? Very, I don't know if I've been clear enough. Are we clear there? No punishment, right? But, but then you get to Proverbs and you see this. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe 
his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplined the son in whom he delights. Now that is probably going to mess some of you guys up because you've conflated or experienced a conflation of punishment and discipline in your life. When your parents should have disciplined you, corrected you lovingly, they punish you and try to scare you into a different life. But God in discipline is not punishing. He's actually loving in correcting us for our maturation, for our sanctification. I mean, can you imagine parenting with no discipline in your life? If you're parenting your kids and there's no discipline, formative or corrective, what kind of little demons are you going to raise, right? Oh, my goodness. I know some of them. I know mine. My non-Christian boys are little demons in my house. If there's no formative discipline, no corrective discipline, what would they be like? What would your life be like if the father didn't so ferociously love you that he actually took the time and cared to discipline you, saying, no, no, please don't go down that route. Please don't volunteer for your own destruction. Please don't go this way and kill your relationships. Come this way. Come this way. Come this way. No, not that way. Even using suffering as a means to discipline you so that you would see more and more of the glory of God, that's his discipline. If you're not with me, I'll, I'll read Hebrews. Hebrews 12 says this, endure suffering as discipline. That's why I couldn't make the, the point I just did. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Now, I don't have time. Daughters of God, you, you shouldn't be worried about that. You should, if, you, if, you, if we haven't connected that recently, I'll just reconnect it. Okay, I'm going to take the time. For you, as a daughter of God, God tells you that you have all the rights of sonship because that's the culture that it's written in. And what does that mean? That means you have the privileged position as the first uh, beloved son of the father. That's your relationship with the father. There, there's no second class children in God's family. There's no JV. There's no like warm up. There's no kids that have been cut. You are loved just as the father loves the son. That's what it means. Keep going. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If the father never disciplines you, this would be another case for you to evaluate, am I actually a child of God. Verse 9, furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For our fathers discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. That's not punishment. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time but painful, and that's where we conflate it, especially now. We see, we can see, I won't make that, that universal statement, but we can see anything as painful as punishment. That's not true. It's just not true. I, I know the God of our age is comfort, so anything that feels like pain feels like punishment. It's just not. It's not. This discipline that can be painful 
is for your benefit so that he can make you more holy. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So your father disciplines you. He doesn't punish you. You need to see that difference. But then you need to see, wait, if I've been operating and functioning in a way that I think that God is consistently trying to punish me and scare me, then you know what that means? That means most likely that's how you interact with other people. Now, punishment is a big umbrella category, but, but you, can, you can think honestly about how you punish people, how you isolate from them to punish them, the cold shoulder, the silent treatment, the belittling, the name-calling, the physical punishment, maybe aggression, maybe verbally. But the reality that John is saying is his love changes us of a people that no longer are going to be punished, so we no longer fear punishment, so we no longer exact punishment. that we wouldn't be a people of a loving justice and a holy joy that we are not motivated by or use the weapon of punishment to the ends of holiness because that is not the path. Punishment has not been used by God as a tool for your holiness. So why would he use it for our kids or our friends or people in our group? I, I, when I talk to my boys around corrective discipline, I, I try to emanate the, the Father's heart for them, and I fail a lot. But when, by God's grace, I'm loving as he has loved me and is loving me, then I can talk about them and sit down and say, hey, there's... There's discipline. There's consequences for your actions. Now, this doesn't change who you are. Your identity is not connected to your actions, but there are consequences for your actions. And I tell them I love them, and I'm for them, and I correct them, and I pray for them, and I point them to Jesus, rather than believing the idiot, the stupid lie, that fearing them, and scaring them into submission is going to make them more thriving humans. It's not. You're not flourishing in your faith because your father is scary. You're flourishing in your faith because your father is love. That's the weapon to wield. That's the tool at our disposal to love and care for because his love changes us and changes us at a very uh, uh, essence, our being, but then it so goes on to transform us to be loving and act loving and care for and serving and helpful as he is. Which continues with verse 19. We love because he first loved us. 
Another aspect of the father that should excite your soul is that he initiates. The, one of the problems since our first parents is that men who are supposed to take hard responsibility and sacrifice and love others shuck off that responsibility, go lazy, apathetic, passive. This is another way. You should not let the men or dad in your life define who father is, but let the father define who he is because he's always the initiator. The plan of redemption initiated by the father. The sending of the son initiated by the father. The sending of the spirit initiated by the father and the son. He's not aloof, unwilling to interact. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Anything you have to his glory is from his initiation. He first loved us. Why we have any sense of caring for anyone else other than ourselves is because he first loved us. But he goes on with another if saying, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. With this initiation, this means that his love excites our love for him. If you want to grow into a more passionate follower of Jesus, then dwell on and soak in his passionate love for you. This is what he's doing. His love for us excites our love for him. Well, what does that look like? Well, then you love, we love what the father loves. And what does the father love? He loves his son and he loves his children. So then we pick up, mirror, catch what the father loves, and we begin to love more and more and more his son and his children, meaning our brothers and sisters. And we love what the son loves. We love the father and his friends. And who are Jesus' friends? Us, our brothers and sisters. That's, that's, that's uh, joining in the love, the objective, the, uh, uh, the object of the father's love. That's us joining in with him and loving that object. But then we also love how he loves. Meaning, dads, your big call from Matthew 28, Deuteronomy 6, the whole narrative of scriptures is this, love your children like the father loves his son. How does that get meted out? Well, Deuteronomy 6 tells us to instruct them and teach them and train them and put the Bible for them and, and have these moments all the time where we're out in creation, we're out in the world, we're experiencing things, and we can stop and say, do you know why that's so gorgeous? Because the Father created it. So that love gets into instruction. You get into Ephesians 6 or Matthew 28. I'm going to make disciples. That's what this love looks like. But just the grand narrative is that we... Uh, uh, parents are called to love our children like the father loves the son. Ergo also loves us. 
John's logic is flawless. This is a, a lesser, greater argument right here from the lesser, greater. Like if you can uh, not love the people that you see, how can you love the God that you don't see? If you do not have the ability to love the brother next to you or the sister in your community group, it's impossible for you to love the God you have not seen. John Stott wrote, it's obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. And if we fail in the easier task, it's absurd to claim success in the harder task. God calls us to walk in the truth and commands here again. If you're going to love, you love God and you love your brothers and sisters. Or as he said it last week, in Jesus' ministry, the Father's love was on display, but in Jesus ascending back to the right hand of the Father and not being on earth in, in human presence, you know how the love of the Father is seen, demonstrated, viewed, displayed our love for one another. Our love for one another. So he's saying, love one another. Love can't terminate, or you can't claim that I just love God and I don't love people. It doesn't connect. It's the same argument where people say, I love Jesus, but not the church. It's like, wait, you love Jesus, but not any of his people. What is happening? What's going on? If you mean institutional, if you mean all the organized ways that are bunk and terrible, okay, but you can't say, I love Jesus and none of his people. That's not the love of God because the love of God keeps going and moving and, and pervading us and everyone we touch. It is, in essence, outgoing, moving towards other people. And so I'm going to end with this, just because just I want to slowly walk through this this morning and finish, which is, let's actually think about this. Last week, I was trying hard to try to persuade you of the Father's love for you. But this week, I want you to evaluate, think, consider Am I loving? Where am I missing it? For some of us, that means that you may have to have that hard, confrontational question from John where he says, if you say you love God and don't love your brothers, you're a liar, meaning this is another test for your faith. Are you a genuine Christian or are you acting like one? Are you faking it? Are you actually a follower of Jesus? Because a follower of Jesus loves God because he's been loved by God, and then he also loves others. But then there's others of us that are in Christ, that love Jesus, and we need to think, where does God... I'd be remiss if we finished this, finish this letter and we didn't press in and think about, how are we loving? Where do we need to grow in our love for brothers and sisters? Where have we maybe been ignorant of, of what that looks like? Or maybe we've, uh, what desires need to be repented of and turned away from our hearts so that we grow more and more love? What habits in my life that are so self-absorbed and self-orienting that I need to turn from, get rid of, put off, and 
replaced with habits that actually grow me in love for God and other people. So I'll start with Joel Beakey. He describes this, a description of how love acts. If you've been around, this is the fourth time I've quoted this because I want you to see it. A description of how love acts. Christ-like, spirit-produced love is giving oneself to glorify God and do good to people graciously and righteously for the sake of friendship. That's how love acts. I don't want any of us to be ignorant of what actually love looks like in action. And now to ask. I'm just asking you these questions. Am I, actively, am I actively glorifying God and serving other people for their good at some cost to myself, or is my love a mere wish or feeling that leads to little or no action? Isn't that confrontational? It, it puts us to actually get the rubber road and not say, oh, I say a lot of words. I say a lot of I love yous, but there's no sacrificial action. There's something off there. Secondly, Am I a servant who gives away my life to others or a Lord who seeks to make others serve and honor me, even to honor me for my good works? If you're with us on Friday night, then men, you know that how tempting it can be to make your home an altar to yourself and try to pull everyone in your family to be about you, for you, concerned, looking at you, paying attention, and making you kind of supreme person in the home. And he's saying, are you a Lord or are you a servant? Three, do I sincerely desire in my heart to do good others to others, or my acts of love compelled by other considerations? Am I playing a long game where, where I'm conning them in love so that I can get something from them in the future? Like, what are the intents of this? Why am I actually going after that? Why am I actually loving? Four, do I love and serve others despite their sins simply because of God's grace, or do I withhold love from those I deem unworthy or who have wronged me? a hard one. I would say, to come back to my earlier point, withholding love from them is your way of punishing them. And if you don't get punishment, then why give it? Or do I love people in ways that show love for God and obedience to his holy laws? Or do I view love as morally indifferent, perhaps even an excuse for sin? Grace is not this carefree attitude that said everything's permissible. We don't care that much. It's okay. No, love actually says I care for you so deeply that I want you to lop off this sin in your life and know Jesus more. So I'm going to talk to you about hard things. Love will actually rebuke and correct. Next, am I loving people as persons created God's image with respect for their thoughts and feelings, or do I treat people as if they're things to be used? Insofar as it depends on me, am I building lasting friendships with the people whom I love, or am I keeping, them my, keeping my distance and isolating myself? 
in his essence, God is loving. Because in his essence, God is community. So to be loved by Father, Son, and Spirit is to then be loving in a family, a community where we're in this together. Love doesn't look like being a hermit, monk, in the desert by yourself. It looks like linking up arms with other people and saying, I'm here with you, and I'm for you, and we're going to keep doing this. And I'm going to stick with you, similar to marriage, whether you're rich or poor, whether you are someone who has all the affinities that I do, and we all like the same things, or you get on my ever-loving nerve, I'm going to love you because you're in Christ, and I am, and you're my brother and sister. Or lastly, do I have a special love for God's people and delight in spiritual, spiritual fellowship with them, such that I would be willing to lay down my left for the brethren? And so my big idea is simply this. There is no fear for you because there's no punishment for you. So John is calling us once again to love God, love one another, don't fear, and don't punish each other. Father, I pray for that. In our hearts, like a, like a, like an intense war, Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to push fear out of our hearts. Or to connect us to Romans 5. Lord, I, I pray that you would grant us a work of your spirit where you would pour the Father's love into our heart spirit and therefore drive out the fear of punishment. That your perfect love for us would send it running. And what would take its place and what would fill our hearts and our life would be your love for us. And I ask this. And the one who loved us perfectly and died for us even while we were still sinners, even while we were enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.